Today is May 16th, 2021. Welcome to Common Ground. The sermon series we are in is called Stories of Resurrection. This sermon is called Death of the Author as Good News. And the speaker is Rob Williams. Enjoy. Yeah, thank you all for having me this morning. And uh, it's definitely an honor to speak after the likes of Dr. Bill Gaffney, John Carlos, and of course, our very own Chantilly last week. And I just wanted to sort of start this by saying that what I have prepared for you is going to be pretty non-traditional. Uh, it's not to say that Common Ground has a typical style, but what you're going to get today is very much a Rob sermon, very much a reflection of how I kind of process deconstruction. Um, and I actually plan to use a video game as my primary text today but I promise that it will connect to what we've been discussing these past few weeks. But before we get into the video game territory, I do want to start with a personal story. So I, like many of you here, am in a continual process of spiritual deconstruction and reconstruction. And recently, one of the most haunting aspects of my deconstruction is trying to reconcile these vivid memories of joy and peace that I have back in the fundamentalist church. And so I often think to myself, were those experiences valid or was I just high on belonging? And then I kind of question, well, why in my mind does just belonging somehow not equal authentic spirituality? And when I dig a little bit deeper, I think the reason why this is so haunting for me is it's actually, there's another question under it, which is where was God in that experience? You see, if God was there, it opens up a lot of troubling questions for me. So part of the reason why this troubles me so much, right, is that these types of churches have come to symbolize so many bad things to me. And so if God was actively present in that space, why didn't God stop it? Why does this place continue to grow, continue to expand? Why does it continue to harm people with its damaging ideology? Now, one thing that I'm starting to realize, and this is by no means an answer to the conundrum, but it's just some ideas that I had recently, is that I experience God most authentically and most consistently through other people. And here's kind of the paradox of the attractional megachurch culture, is that even though at its core, it's built in this kind of top-down hierarchy, it all stems from this lead pastor's charismatic teachings, the very nature of its size means that this lead pastor cannot micromanage everything. They can try, and sometimes they are extremely effective at grooming hierarchies of small group leaders to perpetuate their gaslighting. But what I've observed is that at the bottom level of these small groups, an actual group of people that meet together week in and week out, real spiritual things happen. It happens in spite of any bad theology, in spite of any emotional suppression, in spite of any inauthentic parroting of the pastor's one-liners. You're spending hours and hours with other people, other humans made in God's image, and God shows up there. And so when I now look back on that experience and wonder, where was God? My answer is actually pretty simple. God was in the connective tissue of the small groups. God was active in the friendships that I made. Many of those friendships may not have survived my changing theology. And so retrospectively, I can now question how deep those connections were, but it doesn't invalidate that God's presence was in that connection while it was active. 
I wanted to open with this vignette into my spiritual life because it will help frame the more abstract ideas that I want to share next. And so if you get nothing else out of this sermon, I want you to hear this message that from my story and my lived experience, God shows up in connections with other people. And that's a real source of joy and peace in my life. So keep, keep that story in mind. We will be coming back to it later. And so now I want to transition and tell you about an experience that I had playing a video game recently. It is not an exaggeration to say that this game did more for my spirituality than any other book or form of media this past year. I'll try to keep it vague on plot details to not spoil too much for those who may eventually play this game. But as a for fair warning, there will be some emotional spoilers. So here's the basic premise. Uh, this game in particular, which I'm not going to name also to try to stop spoilers, um, it's, in a, it's a Japanese role-playing game. This is a genre that is filled with a lot of common tropes. The game starts off and it looks like it's basically going to be the usual type of game. There's giant robots. You have to kill stuff and level up. You collect money to buy more stuff to upgrade your ability to kill more stuff. And of course, there are over-sexualized female characters, in this case, literally dressed as French maids. It's like the underbelly of Tokyo meets a usual violent video game. Aside from the particulars, if we zoom out a bit to the meta qualities of this game, it's like all games. The ultimate objective is to win, to stay alive. And like all games, the overall grind ends in a sense of achievement when you dominate it, when you quote unquote beat it, which usually comes when you kill every last thing, including some final boss enemy. This game proceeds along those familiar paths, except something strange happens when you beat the game and the credits roll. The game tells you that you aren't done. You then have to restart the game from the beginning, losing all your progress. And as you replay the game in the second playthrough, it adds these little scenes that weren't there the first time. These scenes actually subvert the original story. One way it does this is by giving you the backstory on all the main villains and enemies. It reveals a much more nuanced view of good and evil. This crazy villain that sort of seemed like obviously evil is actually just really traumatized. There's also a side plot where a character that's literally named after the feminist Simone de Beauvoir completely shatters all the French-made visuals that you've been seeing up to that point. I found that this second playthrough of the game showing you a different lens on all the previous experiences was just a beautiful way of showing you as the player how different lenses can recolor all life experiences. And lest I lose all of you in the video game discussion, I want to point out that this parallels very strongly with spiritual deconstruction. You see, when we learn new things or see our previous enemies in a new light, or when we're invited to question what we used to believe was a guaranteed truth, it does change things for us. It recolors things and it asks some pretty tough questions of us. And this, this game really brings you into those gray areas and it implicitly asks you, do you really want to keep killing everything? And it's at this point that the game really trolls you. By the time you get to the end of the second playthrough, there is a plot device or a plot twist that basically shows that everything you were fighting for was completely meaningless. The thing that you were trying to save, the proverbial princess, was actually dead thousands of years ago. And so all of this killing of these ambiguous enemies, completely meaningless. But the game isn't even done here. 
this is where it gets even better. After you quote unquote beat it a second time, there's a third and final playthrough, which looks at what happens to all of the main characters when they lose that previous sense of purpose. To me, this whole third playthrough was like an extended meditation on deconstruction. It imagines how different people cope with losing their previous sense of purpose. Some characters descend deeper into madness. They double down on the killing because that's all they know. Others, unfortunately, commit suicide because they can't imagine life without the previous capital T truth that they used to believe in. Others purposely sabotage themselves so that the war they're fighting doesn't come to an end. Because what will a soldier be if there's no war to fight and no live enemy? But others still forge forward. And, and these are the folks that, that I really resonate with and that I think those in Common Ground will too. Others still forge forward trying to scrape some sense of meaning when all meaning is lost. And as the player of the game, you are in some ways forced to decide as well how you cope with this loss of purpose. Do you continue playing, continue killing these quote unquote enemies, continue living out the character's descent into madness, or do you opt out? Do you just stop playing? Now, if you do press on through the mindless killing and you do watch most of the main characters go completely mad, just to say that you beat the game a third and final time, that is when the master stroke comes. The final credits roll, and like in movie credits, you see the names of all the people who made this game. You see the companies behind it, every artist, every translator, every writer, and then the game invites you to one last act of killing. It actually lets you shoot the names in the credits, Space Invaders style. You blow up the names of those who created the game. You wind up literally playing out the concept, which existential philosophers call the death of the author. Your last act in the game is to literally overcome those who created it. I interpreted this moment as this ultimate invitation to create your own meaning. It's like the writer is saying, I just let you kill me. Now it's your turn to write the ending. What meaning will you make out of this mess? And it's not even done yet. There is a final decision that the game poses to you once you blow up all of the names of these authors, of the creators. They offer to let you delete your save file irreversibly in order to help other actual people who are still playing the game. They will receive more health and more firepower during this final battle sequence but only if you delete your save, only if you delete all proof of your individual progress, erasing all the domination and killing that you've brought over three plays through this game. If you do that, you'll help some stranger. And the game even reminds you that this person you're helping might be someone you don't even like. It might be someone you hate. In short, it's an invitation to make meaning through and with other people as opposed to the individual achievement of having beat some game on your own. And the craziest part is that the player on the receiving end of your potential sacrifice has to accept your help, completing this loop of mutual interdependence. It's absolutely amazing. So <laughs> that was a long diversion into a video game, but today I wanna to spend the rest of the time doing a little bit more than convincing you that video games can sometimes be works of art. I wanna share with you my reflections on why this game experience was so spiritually meaningful to me. <laughs> Pregnant pause. So let's start with the concept of the death of the author. 
So this phrase, death of the author, it comes from a 1967 essay by Roland Barthes. He's an existentialist philosopher. Um, one of his, um, his peers was Jacques Derrida, who's actually the one that we get the term deconstruction from. So Roland Barthes, in this essay, he argues that there is no way to know the true intent that an author had when they wrote something, even if that author is still alive. He argues this in various ways, but what's interesting is that we can actually see a modern example of an author that's still alive where we don't know their intentions in J.K. Rowling, because there's a lot of questions about some of the intentions behind certain things that she wrote in Harry Potter, and we have no way to really prove what her original intent was, even if she sort of tries to tell us. And so Bart goes on to kind of explain this and says that the intent of the author is largely irrelevant because there is no real concept of objective truth in a text. You see, the author in using whatever words they're using, what writing and whatever genre they chose, is already evoking countless meanings beyond their intention. They're drawing in countless meanings from what those words mean via language, but they're also drawing in so much cultural value from the genre that they're writing in. But then of course, the, the even more fun part is that then every reader who reads this text brings their own experiences and culture to bear. And so we each wind up with new interpretations. So this conclusion that there is no objective truth, which is a big part of the existentialist philosophy, um, it, it does, for some on face value, sound extremely scary. And taken to its extreme, deconstructionism does lead to the older philosophy, which is called nihilism, this idea that everything is meaningless. So the, the way that you would get there from, from no objective truth is you would say something like, okay, there's no objective truth. And so that means that anything that we write down is infinitely reinterpretable. And so what's even the point of trying to communicate with each other? There's no such thing as knowledge at that point. And if there's no such thing as knowledge, then there's no genuine truth or morality. That means that of course, life is meaningless and all of life and the universe is purposeless. But the thing is that deconstruction does not have to follow that logic. And in fact, Barth's essay doesn't end with meaninglessness either. He instead actually ends with this beautiful sentence that says, the death of the author is really about the birth of the reader because each new reader brings new meanings to the text. And to dwell a little bit more on this concept of authorship, I want to talk about another author, Dorothy Sayers. So she is mostly known for writing mystery novels, but she has this kind of one-off theology text that I think is fantastic. It's called Mind of the Maker, and it's about Trinitarian theology. And in this book, she imagines the written word as found in books like a Stephen King novel or like the Bible as having a Trinitarian quality. And so th this is probably the most abstract part of what I'm going to discuss today. So try to stick with me here. So Dorothy Sayers is sort of describing the written word. And she says that it kind of has three parts, just like the Trinity does. So the first part of the Trinity or of a text is the author or the source. You know, in the Christian world, we would call this first person the creator or the father or the mother. And there's some essence in this creator or author that is separate from and yet inextricably tied to whatever words they write. This is part of what we mean when we say that all writing is autobiographical. It's also part of what we mean when we say that we are made in God's image. The second aspect of the text is the words itself, the finished product. And in Trinitarian language, the second person or the second part is the son 
this incarnated one. For us humans, the second part actually takes on kind of a double meaning that I find quite beautiful because Jesus is not only the completed authored work of the Father, but the Word is actually written in the form of human flesh. So Jesus was the very Word or message that he preached. Uh, but then Sayers goes on to describe the third form of the text, which is that any text doesn't end with this completed product or words. It has infinite future meaning each time someone new reads it, just like Bart said. Each new beholder, each new life that intersects with the text breathes new meaning into it. And of course, in the Trinitarian sense, this third person is the connective breathing of new life into all things that we call the spirit. And so when I look at Roland Barthes' Death of the Author, and then I layer on Dorothy Sayers' view of Trinity of text, it brings up a lot of things for me. So first of all, if I was to apply it specifically to the text of the Bible, and I try to think, what does death of the author mean in this context? And that's where it starts to encompass any and all doubts that I might have about the quote unquote source or creator, right? So in Christian spirituality, this doesn't just mean doubts that I have about the biblical text. It also means doubts that I have about God's character, doubts that I alluded to earlier, like where is God? When does God intervene in the lives of human history? When does God not intervene? Those types of doubts kind of gets wrapped up in this death of the author for me. Now, if we follow the nihilistic conclusion of death of the author, we do in fact reach Nietzsche's conclusion, which is that God is dead. But if we instead follow Sayers and Bart, this death of the author is actually a license to a little bit more hope because the text itself lives on even after the author's death. Perhaps more importantly, the spirit continues breathing new meaning into the text forever as each new person comes to interact with it. And so this is where this game gave me so much hope because in the fictional location of a game, the creators managed to explore what true meaninglessness would feel like. You see, they, they not only destroy every sense of purpose via plot reveals, but they also have you as the player destroy their names and then you destroy your own save file. I mean, what can get more nihilistic than that? Erasing the files, the authors, the plot. And yet the game shows that even in this most nihilistic and purposeless of conclusions, there can still be meaning. And how? by forging your own meaning, but also by helping a complete stranger do the same thing. This is really Sayer's third form of the text. It's in my interaction with it and the connection between my interaction with it and other people's interaction with it that there is meaning. You see, in this way, even if the author is dead, there is meaning. Even if God is dead, there is meaning. Now, of course, I'm not saying that I believe God is dead, although on some days I might say that, but I do find a lot of hope in knowing that there can still be meaning even if God is dead. So getting to the home stretch here, so stick with me. One of my favorite aspects of Christian spirituality is the mystical writings throughout the ages. And throughout the ages, these mystics have written that our spirituality can get much deeper when God temporarily withdraws from us, as in the so-called dark night of the soul. And so the game that I described today, you know, it can help us imagine what it will be like to lose all of our sources of meaning. But I think that each and every one of us here knows that our own lives also give us plenty of deconstructive moments to do the same type of imagining. 
moments where God does feel very far away or where we just don't understand, understand where God is at. And I started today by sharing a personal story about my deconstruction where I have a lot of those questions. I struggle a lot to understand what meaning was created when I was volunteering to expand a church empire that by most accounts is perpetuating harm. But then coming out of that experience with a million questions about who God is and where God was when those church empires continue to expand and hurt people, my sense of despair is not only about personal shame, but it's also about deep spiritual doubt. So what is helpful for me then is to use this redemptive view of death at the author. It helps me to name what authors were writing those truths that used to underwrite all of my actions. And I actually find it helpful to name them. And so I will name a few of those truths now for you. And I'm sure many of you can relate. So one of them was helping people find their way into church. Another one was helping to secure the eternal security of people in heaven. These were truths that were kind of like the ultimate filter that all actions went through, that if if something didn't pass these bars, then it wasn't worth doing, wasn't worth discussing. And so now what happens in my mind and in my body when I let those truths die? It is scary. It feels like it feels like the floor is dropping out from under me. And if I continue to name other concurrent deconstructions that are going on for me that, that leave the spiritual realm, when I name things like my whiteness or my American upbringing, when I name things like capitalism and the commodification of us all, when I let those truths and authors die, when I imagine the deaths of those authors, it's easy to feel like the floor just keeps falling out from under me. It's like just when I make peace with a previous layer of deconstruction, there's a new layer to put under the microscope. And Frankly, when that floor keeps falling out from under me, there is a very real fear to me that there isn't an end to it, that, that there really is abyss at the end of it, that there is nihilism at the end of it. And yet, <laughs> that's my favorite word for this whole sermon, and yet, when I am brave enough to imagine what it would mean if everything sublime was some elaborate self-deception, I, I keep coming back to this point about connections between people. Those small groups discussing some terrible theology did something on the human and spiritual register for me. Those, that haunting experience of trying to understand what that joy and peace meant for me is actually quite hopeful. The joy I experienced back then, it was authentic, even if it was shallow. And so I have to say, even when I imagine the worst case scenario of losing all the capital T truths, there's still this spark of hope that comes from other people. Just like in the game, there is a way to redeem all meaninglessness by helping a stranger. And the wild part for me is that the spark of hope doesn't just come from other people. It also comes from this ancient text called the Bible, which may feel dead some days, but it remains very much alive in the spirit. Now, in the church calendar, we find ourselves now in the Eastertide season, and I get a lot of hope from that story, too. And so in closing, I just want to meditate a little bit on the different parts of that Easter story, because I think it intersects quite a lot with death of the author. So if we look at Good Friday, Jesus gets nailed to a cross. He's been defeated by empire. And by most accounts, that empire mythos is alive and well 2,000 years later today. 
Was that meaningless? Well, in the game, meaning was made by sacrificing my save file for a stranger. And Jesus, of course, says something quite similar. Shortly before his crucifixion, he says, there's no love greater than this, sacrificing oneself for friends. There was a very real death on the cross, but in that death, a symbol of sacrifice for friends. And we know that the Jesus story doesn't end on Good Friday. Jesus overcomes death on Easter Sunday, which is absolutely a call for us to lean into all those sparks of hopes that I named earlier, as well as any other sparks of hope we each individually carry. But shortly after the resurrection, there's kind of an interesting twist to the story. Jesus ascends and he leaves bewildered followers behind. You could say that in some ways, the death of the author is not complete until Jesus ascends, because that's when it's up to the remaining humans on earth to make meaning and continue along. And just to like, to spotlight that moment for a bit, the amount of trust that the God of the universe placed on the human race to leave and give us the license to imagine how to carry that story, that story forward is absolutely amazing to me. And then we know, and we're leading up to it in the church calendar, that the real beauty of that story, of course, comes at Pentecost, when the church is born with the coming of what? The third form of the text, that Dorothy Sayers calls it, or what we call the spirit, right? Spirit breathes new life into a potentially dead story. And even today, 2000 years later with the empire mythos still raging, we continue to reread and breathe new life into the text of Jesus's life and the text of a Bible that dozens of dead authors wrote through the ages. I'll just repeat that. Even today, we continue to reread and breathe new life into the text of Jesus's life and the death and the text of the Bible that dozens of dead authors wrote through the ages. So I just threw a lot of abstractions at you. So I will end now with one last concrete point. I can and often do get lost in the complexity of trying to navigate deconstruction. And some days, if I'm honest, it threatens to become nihilism. This game offered to me an antidote to nihilistic thinking that really resonates for me. And it's frankly the simplicity of neighborly love. Dwelling on the people close to me whom I love and who love me, and also on the strangers who I feel some kind of love for as well, that gives me immeasurable hope. My invitation for each of you today is to dwell a little bit on where you derive meaning. I'm sure you've already been challenged to do this, but how might it feel if some of those beliefs or ideas feeding that meaning were stripped away in some way? Probably feels pretty scary. And if you can relate to my idea of the floor continuing to fall out, it may feel pretty bottomless. But as you imagine the death of whatever authors are behind those ideas of meaning for you, consider these last few questions. Do your real connections with real people help to redeem any perceived sense of meaninglessness? Does the simplicity of God's sacrificial love 2,000 years ago give you any hope? And does the invitation to breathe new life into these stories alongside a community of other people invited to do the same, does that get you excited? For me, 
The answer to all three of those is a resounding yes. And so I would say to all of you, may we let that enliven us as we go out from here. Amen.